0: morning at uh, 10:15 service. How are you? Good. Uh, and this is the first time I see you sleeping beauties, uh, uh, normally with the fresh risers that now are doing lunch, and I don't know what else they're doing for the rest of the day. So I bring you fresh and warm greetings from the 8 8 service this morning, it's really lovely to see you this morning. And then also, I hope that each and every one of you are still living. Uh, the commitments you made is December thirty-first at midnight. You know you promised God you're going to read 15 chapters a day. You're going to be running. The response doesn't sound really positive, right? Okay, really nice to be here with you this morning, and I'm looking forward to journeying with you as we get into the Word this morning. So, uh, I, my name is Quinton. Just for some people that don't know who who I am. And um, I have a couple of friends who are Salvation Armyists. Is that right, Booklet? Salvation Armyists. I don't know what the, they, they worship with the Salvation Army. I love the Salvation Army. And because I'm friends with a lot of them, I, I was hoping that I'd get a uniform, uh, like a, as a complimentary to be with, with them. And, um, and so there's something interesting about the Salvation Army is that you have two S's on their, on their uniform. And there's a big debate within the Salvation Army. What does the double S stand for? And so some people say William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, said that the S.S. stands for Save to Save. And that sounds pretty cool, right? But there's another camp within the Salvation Army that says that S.S. stands for Save to Serve. And I go, wow, that's also really interesting to play around with. And uh, there's a lady by the name of Danielle Strickland who shares a story that she was working in a, in a shelter one day, and one of the participants in the shelter, it was a little bit lubricated. And he came down the stairs and he said to her, what does the SS on your uniform stand for? And she said, I don't know. What do you think it is? And he said, sexy soldier. (laughs) So maybe that's what it should be, but who knows, right? But I really, when I started thinking about that, I think that we are saved from something. We are saved from sin. We are saved from something. But we're also saved to something. We are saved for something. And so this morning, we're going to talk about what is it we are saved for, and how do we get to a place where we can serve really well in that space? It's almost like, you know, there's a couple of years ago, there was that awful airplane crash, and there was one survivor out of 500 people on the plane. And like, uh, there's this like massive burden on you if you're the only one that survived. Like, you have to do something great with your life. You can't just go back and not do anything with it, right? And so the question is, um, how, do we, how do we serve in God's kingdom? And so there's a guy by the name of Billy Shaw, who I got to meet in the U.S. a couple of years ago. And one morning, he's sitting with his daughter, four years old, and they're having a conversation. It's Martin Luther King Day. And his daughter says, Dad, who is Martin Luther King, and why do we have a public holiday about him? And the dad was like, how am I going to answer this? So he starts trying to explain to his four-year-old what the civil rights movement was, and, and he's making a big mess of it as he's going through it. And while he's busy fumbling through it, she stops her dad and she says, Dad, was Martin Luther King a hero? And he said, yes, Martin Luther King is a hero. That's exactly who he is. And he thought he could get back to breakfast. But you know kids, they have a way of asking more questions, right? So she asked another question that really stumped him this time. And she said, okay, if Martin Luther King was a hero, who are our heroes today? And he couldn't answer the question. He couldn't point to one person that he could hold in high esteem in modern day society that could be a hero and i wonder if our kids had to ask us that question could we point to somebody in society and say yes they are a hero and i think the church is crying out for heroes crying out for people to serve and walk in what god has intended for them to do so the question is when you became a christian you were all given a red phone is that right you know we see people go into that side lounge there you know what they get there is a red phone. And that red phone is that when it rings, you answer it, right? And so my question to every one of you, when the red phone rings, will you be ready? Mr. Incredible, we need your help. To dinner i can't come to dinner i've got the well i gotta go maybe just a salad and uh yeah oh it's some rice cakes <laughs> Now, I hope that wasn't your dressing routine coming to church this morning and an indication of how great Christmas was, right? I hope that's not the case. But I think as Christians, we put on the uniform and we're ready to serve, but when the phone rings, that uniform doesn't fit quite right. We feel a little bit inadequate to do what God has called us to do. And so we end up not serving because we feel we're not worthy of doing what God has called us to do. And so some of the thoughts that might happen in the back of our heads is that we might say to God, oh, it's futile. The problems of the world are far too big for little old me to take them on. Look at the economy. Look at crime. Look at HIV AIDS. Look at everything that's happening in our country. I can't take it on. And so we tend not to do what God has called us to do because we're like Elijah's servant that says the army is far too great. We cannot. We become overwhelmed by what we see. Another thing we might say is, oh, nobody's going to take my voice seriously. Nobody really believes that I have something of value to add. Have we become Timothy in the new church, where Paul has to continuously encourage Timothy not to be timid, to be bold and fan this flame of faith that has been put inside of him. And so maybe we hold him back because we feel nobody's going to take us seriously. Another one is maybe this is more reality for us in this church is that we've become comfortable in our middle-class lifestyles. We've worked really hard for what we have and it's somebody else to do this work. And we become comfortable with the bad news that we hear and so we hear about our horrific crime and we'll say, oh, eat our ice we say, oh, that's too bad. And we just become comfortable. I pray that God shakes your comfortableness that you have. Maybe we're waiting for a sign, you know, like Gideon, waiting for a sign. If Pastor Sign looks me in the eye and speaks to me by name, then I will do I serve, right? If, um, if my name is written on the wall, if this happens, then I. And so we're all playing that waiting game. So when I was about to marry Tamsin or I was dating her, the first meeting with her, I sat next to her. I said, Lord, if her knee touches my knee, that's the sign I can put my hand on her lap, right? And aren't we all waiting for signs? We're just waiting for something. And I hope that the sign hasn't missed you or that you're not acting because there's no sign. So we shouldn't be playing the waiting game any longer. And the other one, Who, me? I'm too old, I'm too young, I'm too fat, I'm too thin, I'm too clever, I'm not too clever, I've got too much money, I've got too little money, I'm too educated, I'm not educated enough. We become like Moses. We say, Lord, have you heard me speak? Not me, there's other people that can do this. And we say, who, me? And then there's this group of people in the church, grumpy Christians. Been around here for 20 years, nothing. In fact, you came here this morning with that saying, what are they going to teach me this morning? I know everything. In fact, I'm going to take notes to say how you can do it better after this, right? We've been around the block. They're like, yeah, these new young Christians, give them some time to be disappointed by God and we can move on with what we need to do. Plus, we become like a Jonah. You can save everybody, but not those people. Don't bring those people into this church because, and so we become grumpy. And so we don't serve for a whole number of reasons, right? And so when the call comes, will you be ready? Will you be ready to serve God in his fullness? And that's what we're going to talk about today. That we saved, yes, but we saved towards something. And so let's begin to talk about that. So there's a particular time that ETV were following a group of gangsters around, you know, day in the life of a gangster. And so there's this guy, he pulls his team together. It's early in the morning. He's got his team there. They're having their briefing for the day, and he says, you're going to do that, and shortly you're going to do that, and you're going to do this, and we're going to do this. And he gives out the job descriptions for the day, and he says, before we leave, let's just pray that God protect us as we do our work today. This is real. And some of us like, you, but isn't that some of us, that we do all of this, but we still got like a sideline hustle that we just cannot let go of, right? And so the church of Crete is very much like that gang. There's a church established, but they are no different to the society that they live in. By the way, this is modern-day Crete. It's not what Crete looked like back in the Bible. So this, in Crete, the church of Crete, you could not differentiate between the church and normal society. And it wasn't like the church was trying to be open to new believers and seekers, and so we were tuned up. No, they were partaking in the in the city just like everybody else. There was no difference between them and society. And so the question is, this is where Paul is writing to Titus, who was sent to the church in Crete to to establish the church there. And so in the first two chapters, Paul is speaking about what the doctrine of the church should be. And where we pick it up in chapter 2 is where he starts saying how believers should live. And so we pick up the scripture in Titus 2, 11 and 14. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodly, worldly passions, to live a self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, appearing of the glory of the great God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself, his own possession, a people who are zealous for God's good words. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you this morning, Lord Father God, for your word. We want to thank you, Lord, that your word is a light into our path, Lord Father God. That your word, Lord Father God, is a a stick that we can hold on. When all other things fail, your word never fails, Lord Father God. Your word will accomplish everything that it needs to accomplish. Holy Spirit, prepare our hearts this morning as we engage in your word. Make us strong and open our eyes to see where you want to lead us this morning. We thank you in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. I love God's Word. It's absolutely incredible. And when uh, a couple of weeks ago, when when I got this text to preach on, I was like, couldn't you have given me an easy text to preach on? Like, I wanted something where there was a nice narrative, I can follow somebody's life. Like, what kind of narrative is in this? So I was a little bit grumpy the first couple of days, but I said, okay, Lord, I'll wrestle with you. It's the Bible, right? And then what happened? Over the last couple of weeks, I have fallen in love with the Scripture. It is so rich. And I encourage all of us just to dig deep into the Word of God. And so let's unpack it today. So there's this guy by the name of Charles Robinson. He's 19 years old. Uh, He goes to the bank to ask for a loan. So he's there in the bank. He's busy filling out the application form. And in the midst of filling out the application form, he gets some kind of revelation, some kind of clever idea. And he says, Rather than pay all this interest, rather than do all the hassle of application form, I think I should just rob this bank. And so he walks out of the bank, goes and buys himself a gun, comes back to that very same bank that afternoon, goes to a teller, gives a teller a note saying, I'm robbing the bank, give me all your money. She does that. He makes the getaway, gets to the car, and realizes that he left the note in the bank. And he knows with modern day technology, with handwriting stuff, they'll find him. So he goes back to the teller and takes his note, goes back to the car. But by the time he gets back to the car, he realizes he left the car keys in the bank. <laughs> but now he can't go back because the police have surrounded the building. And so he does what every good criminal does. He ducks and he hides, he moves and he makes, and he takes about 20 minutes. He gets home. He's out of breath, but he's got it. He's got the loot. He's made it. Oh, safe at last. And then his friend in the, bank, in, the, in, the, in the flat says, hey, dude, where's my car? And he's like, ooh. He says, no, somebody stole it. His friend gets on the phone immediately to the police and says, somebody stole my car. Within 20 minutes, the police are at the flat. Arrest him. And uh, the rest is history, right? He's a bad thief, right? He's a really bad, bad thief. But I think when I think about it, we are Christians on the run like him. We are bad sinners. We think we're good sinners. You know, we've deleted this and we've covered this up and we've, we've, we've got this life for that thing over there. When we come, and then when we get ready to come to church, you know what happens? We change the radio station in the car. We start warming up on our Christian language that we can start talking. Do our hair like good Christians. We cover up. And when we get to the front there, we know how to greet. For us that has been around for 20 years, we know which words to say when Pastor Psy si comes. You know, I know what language to use there. We try to avoid Gregory by all costs, right? Because the prophet, you know, we don't want the prophet to reveal those kind of things, right? And so, Greg, the reason people aren't greeting you is not because you're not a nice guy. It's because they're fearful that God is going to speak and reveal that they are a bank robber, right? And so we come and we are Christians on the run in this house. But I've got good news for you that the grace of God makes it safe for ourselves to turn ourselves in, right? And so when we come here, we don't need to pretend anymore. We don't need to play the game anymore. And it doesn't matter if you're never accepted Jesus or you've been in the faith for 20 years, this is a place where you can turn yourself in, right? And the sooner you do it, the better, right? And so Pastor Cy week one was talking about how amazing this grace is, that this grace is undeserved, unmerited favor with God. And there's nothing me and you can do to, to, to have grace, more grace or less grace. And that grace is this incredible thing that allows us to go into the kingdom of God and that we are saved by this grace. And part two, it appeared that this grace is not your or my idea. It is initiated by God. He thought it out, and it is his plan for redemption for me and you. And so there's nothing that we schemed that this would happen. The other thing about this is that it, God's great, his grace is fit for purpose. It achieves everything it intended to do. And so when Jesus was on the cross, and he said it is done, it is done. There's no more me and you can do to do it, right? And there's no sunya that scares God. There's no sunya that is beyond God's amazing grace. Roger really spoke well last week about how we need to just accept it and that we need to be able to engage around that. But this grace is for all people. And I'm so blessed that we sang Amazing Grace this morning. So if you go to the United States and you go to the Congress Library and you look up Amazing Grace, you'll find something really interesting, that the words for Amazing Grace were written by John John Newton. But the melody is unknown. It's not his melody. It is somebody else's melody. You know where John Wesley, uh, Oliver Newton, John Newton heard the melody for Amazing Grace? While he was a ship, while he was captain in a ship that had slaves in the hull of the ship, he would hear the slaves at the bottom of the ship Chanting a West African uh, chant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so John heard that melody from slaves that were bound at the bottom of a ship. And so when he ran out of everything and he started writing these words, amazing grace, it was slaves that were the inspiration for the melody. And I don't think that it's by mistake that God would use a melody from slaves and the words of a slave trader to talk about God's amazing grace because God's amazing grace is for everyone. It is not for you or for them. It is for everyone, man and woman, Black and white, rich and poor. There is no special grace for any particular nation. Amazing grace is for everyone. And we all can take part of it. And I promise you, I never sing that song the same after I understood that. That this grace is for everyone. But this grace isn't a one-time event, right? It didn't happen in 1984 on the 4th of December at 8 o'clock when God met you, right? Right? And from now onwards, for the rest of your life, you just remember that incredible day when God met you and saved you, right? Because God's amazing grace is not a one-time event. It's an ongoing process. And it allows us to do the things. So it purifies us so that we can do the work that we can do now. And we need to thank God for His grace because it was only by God's grace that we could enter into His worship this morning. It is God's grace that allowed us to sit here today. And so we should be thankful for God every single day and that he's not done with you. Even tomorrow, his grace will be there for you. And so in preparing for this, I was reading a little bit of Max Lucado's In the Grip of Grace, if you want a book to read. And in the book, he's talking about one day, he was sitting in traffic. And while he was sitting in traffic, out the corner of his eye, he noticed there was an alleyway, like the Lord made a way where there seemed to be no way. And so he took a short lift, went down the double up, and saved himself 10 minutes to get to work. He was praising the Lord inside of him, saying, praise the Lord. The next day, he did it again. And for the next six weeks, he used this double up the Lord had provided in the midst of all this chaos and traffic. So a couple of weeks later, his wife was with him in the car. And he's like, oh, this is the opportunity of a lifetime to show my wife what the Lord has revealed to me. And so she's sitting with him. He turns left down the road. And she starts looking at him like, what's up with you? he's like, look what the Lord has done. And she says, you're going down the wrong way. It's a one-way. He goes, no, it's not. She says, it's a one-way, it's a no-entry. And so after a little bit of haggling, you know, his husbands and wife haggle sometimes, he goes and looks at it, and there was a no-entry sign, but it was covered by a dumpster. So he repented. But the problem wasn't that he repented. He said the problem was the next day when his wife wasn't in the car, and he got to the same spot, <laughs> and the road was open. Does he take the double up? Or does he stick with what he knows, right? And that's what we're talking about today. When you see the double up, do you take it or do you stick with what you know, right? And so Titus says that we need to be trained as believers to walk as Christians, right? Because when I'm a thief and I've been incarcerated, I only know that. And so I have to be trained to live a different kind of life. And so as a sinner, I need to be trained to live a different kind of life. The one I don't know if this is a shock to anybody, but this Christian walk was never meant to be walked alone. You're not here by yourself, nor were you ever meant to walk this lone road alone. And so Jesus provides the Holy Spirit, first and foremost, to help us on this journey as we are Christians. He will guide us. He will teach us how to walk and be children of God. But the interesting thing about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not a bouncer. The Holy Spirit isn't a bully. I like to see the Holy Ghost as like a grandmother that gives quiet but really strong corrective decisions in our lives. And we need to pay special attention when the Holy Spirit is speaking to us, lest we grieve the Holy Spirit. And so it's the Holy Spirit. It's also through discipleship. And so through, in this church, we offer a number of things that you can do to walk like Christians, whether it's 215, 115, 215, 115, all those numbers, all all, both, right? Whether it's Victory Weekend, whether it's going to whatever this, but get involved in training yourself up. And then the other thing we're gonna talk about next week, but it's about connect groups. Get connected, stay connected, because that's where we begin to see real growth in our lives. I must make a comment about my connect group, that my connect group are bouncers. They are like well-stocked guys, Right, and I know if I mess with them, they're gonna take me down, wrestle me to the ground. They're not gonna allow me to walk out of here. They'll grab me, they'll hunt me down. So find a connect group because you're never meant to do this walk alone, right? And so Titus says that we need to deny our worldly and godly passions. We need to turn away from them. And he says renounce. Renounce is an interesting way of looking at it, right? To renounce is not to avoid them or sidestep it. You know, I think as Christians, sometimes we try to get as close as possible to sin and say, "Ooh, I just made it, Hey, eh? <laughs> we, we play with faith, so how close, how close to the edge can I get before I fall, right? And Titus is saying we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't sidestep it or play games with sin. We should renounce it, break loyalty with it. We should not be part of it in any way, shape, or form before you get all caught up with the rugby. And so what should we break away from? What should we renounce? We should renounce immorality. Now there are two parts of immorality that are interesting to me. The first part of immorality is the things that we know. You're a sinner, you beat your wife, you're a liar, you you steal, you do all those bad things, right? And that's easy to say, you need to repent. So there's somebody that does the immorality. But with immorality, there's also a victim, and that's far more difficult to talk to, because when you're a victim of immorality, it is really difficult. Some interesting things that come out of research, that 9-11, after 9-11, they, they looked at Christians that, that prayed after 9-11, and there are two groups of Christians after 9-11 that prayed. One group of Christians after 9-11 prayed for God's justice, God's revenge on the people that did this evil thing to their nation and to their families. And there was another group of Christians that prayed for God's mercy, grace, and abundant love. And when they looked at those two groups, the group that prayed for justice, revenge, took them much longer to heal. It took them much longer to recover from their post-traumatic stress. Versus the people that prayed, Lord, forgive thee, and prayed for mercy, their healing was quicker. They didn't suffer as much from post-traumatic stress. And so when we think about immorality, we need to pray for God's grace to forgive. For God's mercy to be abundant in our hearts. Because it's only good for us. But also pray for God's grace that if you're, a, you're perpetrating immorality, you need to stop. But not in a judgmental way. Because there is grace for you. The second thing we need to turn away from is... Uh, religious, ooh, English again, second service gone already, being religious, right? And I think each of us, the longer you are Christian, the more you become infected with a religious mindset, right? And you start falling in love with this institution of the church, and you fall in love with rules, rituals, routines. Oh, he didn't raise his hand on the second song There must be, we must send a prophet to go and prophesy over that person, right? Oh, that person did it, right? And so the rules, rituals, and routines become center, not the person of Jesus Christ. And so as we turn away from those things, we also need to be aware of who do you focus on when you meditate on God? Because again, research is really interesting. It's amazing how research is now underpinning God's Word. And they found that if you meditate on a God that is angry, a God that seeks a, uh, uh, something for your sin, a God who is punishing, your levels of empathy and, uh, begin to drop. Your ability to love the world begins to fade. But if you focus your meditation on a God that is loving, merciful, full of grace, your empathy levels and your care levels begin to rise. And so I wonder why the number of church members are dwindling, Maybe because we're focusing and meditating on the wrong aspects of God. And the Jehovah you focus on is the, Jeho- the person you will become. And so if you focus on a Jehovah that is punitive, that is punishing, you are going to become like that. And so who are you focusing on? Put Jesus in the center. We also need to understand that we need to turn away from our self centeredness. And Greek, Greek mythology talks about Narcissus, the God who was walking in the forest and one day caught a glimpse of himself in the river and he fell in love with what he saw at the river, he could not take his eyes off his own reflection. So much so that he died at the river because he could not leave his own reflection. And I think we all are somewhat self-centered in the way we show up. And it's manifested in our unrelentless, desire to consume things. And so when we are consuming, it's about us. And we will do anything to get the latest pair of jeans without recognizing what are the consequences of getting those jeans. What did it take? Who made them? Or who am I going to step on to get the promotion because it's about me, right? And normally the self centeredness is rooted in pain. And so we need to turn away from it. Last thing we need to turn away from is pride. Making yourself the king of your life makes grace obsolete, yeah. makes the work on the cross null and void, yeah. right? And, I, and, and it's amazing that pride turns an angel into a demon. Pride is such a deep-rooted evil thing that we need to pull out of our hearts. Yeah. And pride is interesting, right? Because it it makes me decide which parts of God's word I will listen to. So there's a story of a German general in charge of the German army in World War II in Stalingrad. And so the Germans are surrounded by the Russians. They are going to be defeated. And so Hitler phones, makes communication with his general, and says, kill yourself, commit suicide, don't let them take you captive. And this general turns around and says, I will not do it. This is the first time this general's ever said to Hitler that he will not take his life, will not follow an order. And when Hitler said, why won't you do that? He said, I'm a Christian. The word of God doesn't allow me to do that. But can you see the disconnect between that? That he was allowed to kill and murder millions of people. But yet when it came to him, he could choose which part of God's word he can associate with. And so when we think about pride, we need to turn our back on pride. And we need to start living a life that is self-controlled, upright, and godly. Right? And it's interesting that when we talk about self-controlled lives, it's about our relationship with ourselves. When we talk about upright lives, it's about our relationship with one another in this room. And godly, it talks about our relationship with Christ. Isn't it amazing? One sentence covers a whole bunch of things, right? And so when we live self-controlled lives, um, it sets us on a particular direction. It's the railway line that this bullet train that God has given you to accomplish incredible things allows you to accomplish, right? And so self-control helps you do that. Self-control also is the currency of freedom. You've seen a teenager, hey? i not a teenager. It's a teenager, and then when they leave your home, you know what happens to them after they leave home, hey? Yeah, these things start happening, freestyle, free for all. Hair starts growing, tattoos start appearing, piercings start happening. You're like, is this my child, right? And the very freedom that they've been yearning for could destroy them, yeah. right? And so as Christians, how much more that when we were enslaved by sin and become free, and we have this freedom, how much more is that freedom dangerous to us? And that's why we need to live these self-controlled lives that allows us to be completely focused on what God has called us to do. And so, and so self-controlled lives helps us to say no to certain things. Nehemiah's on the wall, building the wall of Israel. Of Israel, yeah, of, of Israel, yeah. Busy building the wall of Jerusalem. And while he's busy building the wall, people are trying to get him down from the wall so they can distract him, right? And what does he say when he's up on the wall? I'm busy with a great work. I cannot come down. My encouragement to you this year is that you will be busy with a great work and you will not come down. You will not turn left or right, but you will do what God has called you to do this year, right? And that is your commitment to yourself. You're also called to live upright lives, lives that are honest, lives that have integrity, lives that are committed to engaging with brothers and sisters with uprightness. Another way I'd like to say is with respect. But respect is an interesting word because it has cultural nuances, right? Because in one culture, looking you in the eye and shaking with a hard hand is respect and in another culture, looking down and not looking at you would be respect. And another culture, le- coming on time and leaving on time is respect and in another culture, not leaving might be respect, right? And so which respect are you talking about? <laughs> How many of you Remember the day you were born. Can anybody remember the day they were born? Somebody once put their hand up when I asked this question and they say, I remember the day I was conceived. I was like, yo. That's a different kind of consciousness, right? So I want you to think for a moment. The day a baby was born in your family, whether your own or a relative or a friend, Amazing, the family comes to a standstill, right? You send gifts, you get gifts, we celebrate this thing. But I want us to think for a moment about a baby. A baby, as a thing, is quite useless. It can't contribute to society. It doesn't have any money to give anywhere. It can't drink, I mean, it can't, it can't, it can't drink and eat. You have to do all of that for it. You need to dress it. And the worst part of it is it poops and vomits everywhere, right? Um, and so... But now that you're, if I look around the room, the average age is what, 29 in the room? Average age, right? It's getting lower every service, right? You're contributing to society. You have a bank balance. It looks like most of you dressed yourself this morning. But somehow, we love you less today than the day you were born, right? And so when we think about that, is that when we live upright lives, We're giving people respect because they're children of God. We treat people with dignity because they are human. And so I'm calling us that God is calling us to treat each other like that. The last thing that we need to live towards is a godly life, where God is the center of everything that we do. Our start and end is about God. It becomes Christ-centered. And God isn't this big sugar daddy that we rely on every now and then. That we come to be fast and pray so we can get something from him. Whenever we come, he doesn't go, oh, no, not you again, trying to run away. Because all you do when you come is to ask for things. And our relationship with God needs to be very different. It needs to be a place of saying, Lord, how do I serve you? What are the things I need to do for you? And so in Titus 2, 12, it talks about this present age. Not tomorrow, not next week, not just now. Now, the hour is now to begin to live godly lives. The hour is now to turn away from your all ungodly ways. The hour is now. We need to do it now. And so often I think we we make plans with God. Next week, I'll give that. Next time the bonus comes, I will. And so we need to understand that we need to live godly lives now. And the last thing before we wrap up this morning is that we need to be wait. We need to be waiting in anticipation for the return of our Savior. It reminds me of Christmas you know, leading up to Christmas, you get the Advent calendars and you've got the four candles and every week you light a candle, every morning you run to get the chocolate because we're so anticipating Christmas Day. How are we anticipating the second coming of Christ? Are we that in eager and enthusiastic that we say, could day, today be the day? Am I ready? Am I living a life that is worthy of my Savior coming back today? Or am I going to be caught like, oh, the house isn't clean? Am I going to be caught unawares that my Savior is coming back? And so we need to say, Lord, I'm living my life in a way that is meaningful to you. And so Titus 2.14 begins to wrap this all up for us. and says he gives himself to redeem us. We are all redeemed in this room today. But we're not redeemed just to stay redeemed. We are redeemed to be zealous. For good works. And so, two groups of people, maybe three, two groups of people this morning. If you're sitting here and you don't have a relationship with Christ, if you don't have this relationship and that you understand that you are redeemed, it's your opportunity today to say, I'm coming home. It's your opportunity today to say, Lord, I'm turning myself in. I'm handing myself in. I no longer want to be on the run. And this is the opportunity that's going to be given to you today. To say, "Yara, come, Father. The second group is a group that have got the uniform, but it's not fitting nicely. We're feeling like we could be doing more for God, but we're not. I want you to know that God's grace is more than sufficient to equip you to do the work that he's called you to do. And so don't worry about that. Just stand in his grace that is undeserved. Let's pray this evening, this morning.